If you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verses 14 through 18 will be our focus this morning. We're going to read verses 12 through 18 together as our focal passage occurs within this section of 12 through 18. You'll find Philippians 2 12 through 18 also printed there inside along with the order of service if you would like to follow along there. Distinctions, differences, they matter. They matter. For example, they matter to those who deal in art, and especially old art, right? When you're talking about millions of dollars for a Rembrandt or a Monet, it matters whether or not it's genuine or it's a forgery. Author Malcolm Gladwell, in his book Blink, in the introduction of that book, writes about one particular instance of art transaction, if you will, where distinctions mattered. Back in the early 80s, there was a museum in California that was approached by an art dealer saying that he had a statue from ancient Greece, approximately 6th century B.C., and he was offering the statue up for sale for the mere price tag of about $10 million. No doubt the The museum had a real interest in whether or not this sculpture was genuine or a forgery. So, they began a 14-month-long investigation trying to determine whether or not this statue genuinely came from the place and period that the dealer said it came from. He had documents supporting its transmission though they only went back for less than a hundred years. But he documented the recent transmission from a well-known art dealer into a private collection and then into his hands. The style of the sculpture seemed to fit the era and location from which the the, the dealer said it came from. There was an extensive scientific analysis conducted on the statue. Listen to what they did. A geologist from the University of California spent two days examining the surface of the statue with a high-resolution stereo microscope. He then removed a core sample measuring one centimeter in diameter and two centimeters in length from just below the right knee and analyzed it using an electron microscope Electron microbe, mass spectrometry, X-ray diffraction, X-ray fluorosense. The statue was made of dolomite, marble, from a specific ancient Greek quarry, the, uh, the geologist concluded, and the surface of the statue was covered in a thin layer of calcite. The, the geologist said this thin layer was significant because dolomite, the marble, can turn into calcite only over the course of hundreds, if not thousands, of years. In other words, 
the statue was old. It was not some contemporary fake. But then, as more and more eyes begin to gaze on that statue, especially eyes trained in the history of art and familiar with this period of art, questions began to arise. The first individual to suggest that this is a fake, you know what he pointed to? The fingernails. The fingernails on the statue. He said they just, they just don't look right. Further, more examination. And art historians began to notice that it looks like when you compare the, the proportions, the slenderness of the statue, you look at the beaded hair, you look at the feet of the statue, they all look like they come from different places and different eras. Holes began to show up in the documentation that he had provided. In the end, the museum put on its plate for the statue Greece, 530 BC, or modern forgery. They didn't know. In 2018, the statue was taken out of public display because of on, I, I suppose, because of ongoing discussion and debate. The distinctions, the distinctions in those proportions, even down to the fingernails, mattered to those who were concerned about whether or not this piece was genuine or a fraud. And the Apostle Paul writes, as he writes to the Philippians, in a way that says, distinctions. The distinctions of the people of God in contrast to the world in which we live, these distinctions matter. And he points to two distinctions in particular that I want us to see. Two distinctions that I think the Apostle Paul says is how we as the people of God shine as gospel luminaries or gospel lights. Follow along as I read from Philippians Chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. As the Apostle Paul calls the Philippians to live as gospel luminaries or gospel lights, there are 
four things for us to observe from this passage. First is the context of shining. The context of shining as Gospel luminaries. Secondly, the act of shining. The act of shining. Thirdly, the power for shining. And then lastly, the reasons for this Gospel shining. Notice the context of the shining so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Where are they to shine? They are to shine as lights in the world in which they live in the midst of what Paul describes as a crooked and twisted generation. A crooked and twisted generation. Here, Paul is actually taking up language used by Moses to describe the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 32, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. We have one of the instances of the Song of Moses recorded for us here. As the people are on the edge of the promised land, of course, Moses is not going to enter with them. Beginning at the end of verse 30 of chapter 31, then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. So here Moses is talking about his own speech, his own language, and desired effects as he speaks to the congregation. And then what does he say? For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Here Moses is celebrating who God is and the greatness of His work, His character. And what should be the response? It should be rejoicing. It should be celebrating. For the Israelites have seen the hand of God as He has provided for them over the years. But Moses looks back. And what does he say about Israel? They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. What is he saying here? Moses is saying that Israel is distorted. They are corrupted. They are twisted. Why? Because they have rebelled against the great and holy, mighty God. And this has been the story of their exodus, has it not? As they come out, they grumble because they don't have food. Because they don't have water. They refuse to go into the promised land despite all the promises that had been given to them. Over and over and over, they resist God. They oppose God. They are described as a stiff-necked people. And here, then, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 takes up that same language 
not to describe the Philippian church, but to describe the generation in which they were living. Why? The common thread between both is a resistance and a rebellion against the greatness of God, against the goodness of God. And it seems that what Paul is doing in describing the culture in which the Philippians live as crooked and twisted, he's not pointing to some particular aspect of their culture, though there was much that he could have pointed to. But rather, he's painting in broad strokes the fact that they, as a collective culture, as part of fallen humanity, are a crooked and twisted generation. And every generation throughout human history can be labeled as crooked and twisted because of the effects of sin. Even down to our own age, we live in a crooked and twisted generation. But it's important as we think about this rebellion against God and the ways that it is manifested, no doubt, we could create a punch list of ways in which, in the culture in which we live, we see seemingly on increasing display twistedness distortion, rebellion against the goodness of God and God's good design for humanity. But friends, it's important that we remember as this is the context in which the Philippians were to shine as Gospel luminaries, and this is the context in which we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are to shine as Gospel luminaries, it is important that we get the order correct. And here's what I mean. When we look at the world around us and we cry out regarding ways in which God's purposes, God's goodness for humanity, relationships among human beings are opposed and distorted and twisted, we need to remember this. That it is not those acts, those words, those desires that create the crookedness. That create the twisting. But rather, such manifestations of rebellion against God are the result of the fact that we are all apart from the saving work of Christ, sold into slavery to sin. And this is important for us to recognize because if we get the order wrong, then we will get the solution wrong. If we say that it is a particular value, that causes the crookedness, the twistedness. Let's just take a commitment to homosexual marriage as an example. If we take that as the example, 
and say that the generation, the world, the society in which we live is trending towards crookedness because of its embrace of this distortion of God's design for marriage as the union between a man and a woman. And we say that because of that commitment, the generation is twisted and crooked. Then what is the solution? The solution is to correct their view of marriage. And then the problem is solved. Now, we should be advocates for the one and only true form of marriage. The only marriage that is truly marriage in God's eyes. And that is the union between a man and a woman. However, as we advocate for that, we must remember that in our advocacy, in our advocacy, we are not striving to correct and solve the problem of this generation by correcting the view of marriage. We are to be, we are to argue for what is good and what is in the best interest of human flourishing, what is for the goodness of humanity, but a correct view of marriage has never saved a single human being. And it never will. Because, again, I'm just taking this issue. A distortion on the view of marriage is the fruit of the distortion of sin. Here's why this is also important. Because even those who would agree with us on the issue of marriage and what true marriage is, and we rejoice where we find common ground, that view of marriage does not make them right in the eyes of God. If the problem of sin has not been dealt with, and the only place where the problem of sin can be dealt with is at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we advocate for what is good. We advocate for what is true. We advocate for what is beautiful. Because we believe according to God's Word that this is what is right. That this is what is good. That this is what is in people's best interest truly. But most deeply, what is in their best interest is to know that there is a problem that is common to all of us. And it is the problem of sin that can only be dealt with at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else, everything else shows up as expressions of this distortion of sin. And so, in the midst of, in the context of a crooked and twisted generation, which is every generation since the fall of Adam and Eve, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, what are we to do? We are to shine. We are to shine. The act of shining. How is it in the midst of confusion, in the midst of anger on all sides of the equation, 
There's a whole other sermon that we could preach there. How is it that we are to shine as gospel luminaries in a fallen world? Well, Paul says, one way we do it, in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. One way in which we as the people of Christ shine as gospel lights in this age is to be characterized as a people by not having something that characterizes us. By not having grumbling or dissenting or complaining as an attribute of our life together. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or arguing. What does Paul mean here when he says without grumbling or disputing? Well, here again, he is appealing to that picture of the Israelites and their grumbling and murmuring against Moses and Aaron, which Moses says is truly grumbling and murmuring against God. It's complaining. But what about the disputing, the arguing? One way to describe or to characterize what Paul writes about here, it's quarreling, as one commentator says, it's quarreling and debating in ways that are divisive and raise doubts. We have talked about the fact that this congregation is strained by inner turmoil, differing viewpoints, and it seems as though there is grumbling about these divisions among them. But it could also be that they are grumbling and that they are arguing over the fact that they are suffering as the people of God. And they are complaining and grumbling about their life and it's hard to follow Christ in the midst of the world around us that is pressing in on us and calling us to oppose our claim that Christ is Lord and appeal to Caesar is Lord and we can't do that and it's, it's awkward, it's difficult and we don't like it. And they were grumbling. It could be that they were grumbling and complaining, arguing, because they were dissatisfied with the leadership of their church. It's interesting that Paul uniquely calls out the pastors or overseers, elders, and the deacons in the head of his letter where it begins. Some see this as maybe an indication that the church is dissatisfied with their congregation's leadership and they're grumbling about it. They're complaining about it. Could be that they're upset with the Apostle Paul and as he is suffering for the gospel, he's not making life any easier on them. In the end, we don't know exactly what it is that they are complaining about. But what we do know, based on this corrective, is that like the Israelites, things weren't going according to the Philippians' expectations, their desires, and they were letting it be known. They were airing their grievances in a way that was unchristlike, 
in a way that was not giving testimony to the watching world that their genuine hope is in Christ. Do you know how rocks are split? Rocks are incredibly hard. And it takes a lot to split a rock. But you know what? It can be a lot at once, or it can be a little bit over an extended period of time. A wedge. A series of wedges. Pounded each time a little bit. Over time, will split a massive rock. But not just little wedges with the pounding of a hammer, but the drip of water. The drip of water, and then that little bit of water freezes. And as that water freezes, it expands, pushes that rock out a bit. When it thaws, it carries some of the rock away with it. And then a little bit more water and it freezes, and it expands. And this kind of drip, drip, drip can break down even the most massive of boulders. And the same thing can be true in the life of a congregation. That a drip, drip, drip of complaining, of grumbling, can tear a congregation apart. Paul is warning them for their own good and for the sake of their witness in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation that he says. It should not be so that you are characterized by grumbling and complaining. Now, two things are important to notice here. One is that the, the ultimate issue is one of contentment. Contentment in circumstances, which Paul is going to come to in chapter 4. And we're actually going to come to again here in just a moment. But, let me make plain that what the Apostle Paul is not saying, I don't believe, he is not saying that you should, you have concerns, you have questions, He is not saying, just shut your mouth. He's not saying, just go along to get along. There is a place for a respectful appeal. There is a way to ask questions and seek to understand and strive for what is best. But there is also a way to ask questions and to poke holes that is nothing but a divisive attempt to get my own way. Paul says the second should have no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are places for the first as we live life together. And I just want to say here, as a word of personal note, obviously the, the past nine months or so have 
been a time of transition for our congregation. And I will be the first to admit that my pastoral leadership has not been perfect. I know that better than anyone else. But I'm also grateful. I'm also grateful for your patience with me as we strive together to be a gospel witness in this generation. I appreciate the fact that our church family is not characterized, so far as I know, by this kind of grumbling or divisive questioning, subversion. But it's also important for us to be reminded that this is an ever-present temptation when things are not going the way that we would want them to go. And so how do we shine as lights in this world? We shine by not giving into the temptation to grumble with and about one another. But we also shine as we rejoice. Notice where the Apostle Paul ends this passage. This calling to rejoice. He says he rejoices with them and he invites them to rejoice with him. He says that even if his service on their behalf ends in his death, he's talked about that in chapter 1, and I think that's what he's referring to here in chapter 2 as he describes his service as a drink offering poured out. That drink offering could not be put back into its container once it was poured out. It was done. But as his service reinforces and strengthens their life as a congregation and their sacrifice as a congregation for the sake of the Gospel, they are to rejoice together in all circumstances that they face together. And in this way also, in this way also, they shine as Gospel lights. A flashlight. A flashlight that won't turn on is just as good as a paperweight. Especially when all the lights are out. You've experienced it. All the lights go out and you need a flashlight. It doesn't work. Great, it's a flashlight, but it's not giving any light. In this way, we as the people of God are to give off our light by rejoicing in the midst of all the circumstances that we face together, rejoicing in the goodness of God, rejoicing in the greatness of God, rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. But a flashlight is also no good if it always stays on. If it never goes off. If you had a flashlight that never turned off, would you really keep the batteries in that flashlight? It would be wasteful. You would take them out. And in this way, in this way, I think Paul is saying that we are to turn off the grumbling and complaining where we are tempted in that direction. 
Either way, when we grumble and complain, when we are not characterized by rejoicing, we are not shining as gospel luminaries in the midst of this generation. But what is the power for shining? If we are to shine in this life, what is the power that God has given us to shine? Because He doesn't just say, shine! Go figure it out! Make it work! Shut your mouth! Get going! That's not what the Apostle Paul says, is it? Notice what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the Word of life. There it is. How do we shine as Gospel lights? We only do it as we hold fast to the Word of life. That is the Word that brings life. Now, most broadly, this could be speaking of Scripture. Think about what we read in Psalm 19 and the effects of Scripture. Verse 7 of Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This restorative work of the Word of God is life-giving. We only shine as Gospel luminaries as we individually and collectively give ourselves to the Word of God. This is one among many reasons why we want the Scriptures to be central in who we are as a people of God. It is only by being guided by them, by being empowered by them, that we will shine as the witness that we are to be in this world. But more specifically, this Word that brings life is not only Scripture broadly but it is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is the Word that truly gives life. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 1.16? That it is the Gospel that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Moreover, in 1 Peter 2, in 1 Peter 1, at the end of 1 Peter 1, you can note that down and look at it yourself later if you'd like. There, Peter speaks of the gospel as being the word that brings new life. It is only as we individually and together cling with all our might to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then will we shine as Gospel luminaries in this life. And once again, I am grateful that we as a congregation do hold fast to the Gospel and want the Gospel to be the message that we proclaim as Jeff prayed 
just a little bit of go, a little bit ago. But here again, we must be reminded of the temptation to drift to some other hope, to drift to some other message. And may it never be. Because as soon as we hold out an alternative message, then our light will fade. Then we will not be shining as gospel luminaries. We must hold fast to the word that brings life. But it is also by virtue of the fact of who we are and who are we? Who are we? We are, by faith in Christ, the children of God. The children of God, verse 15. This calls back to mind what we saw last week. And truly, what the Apostle Paul is writing about here is one of the key ways that he wants this congregation to work out what God is working in them. And what does this have to do with the power to shine as Gospel luminaries? We shine as Gospel witnesses because God is at work in us enabling us to shine. Remember again Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. The power of God to shine for us to shine in this age is the power of God at work within us. And as we hold fast to that Word that brings life. A light bulb needs power to shine. Either the switch on the wall has to be flipped, the switch on the lamp has to be flipped, the circuit breaker has to be closed. Otherwise, the light bulb will not shine. The only way in which we will continue to shine in this generation and for generations to come is as we hold fast to the message of hope and salvation that is found only in Christ alone. Let this be the message we proclaim. Being confident that as we do, God is at work empowering our very witness to His glory. Why should we shine? Time forces us to be brief here. Why should we shine? as Gospel witnesses, putting off grumbling and complaining, rejoicing in the Lord so that we would be without blemish. So that we would be blameless and innocent. Not in and of ourselves. But this is reminiscent of what we read elsewhere in Scripture. Like in 1 Peter. Where Peter recalls the words in Leviticus, be holy, God says to His people, because I am holy. Why should we shine as Gospel witnesses? Because this is how we reflect the character of God and grow in holiness. Why should we 
shine as gospel witnesses in this age because there is coming a day, the day of Christ, when we will be with the Lord forever. And in anticipation of that joy, looking forward with hope to the day when we will be with Him, then now, today is the day that we declare hope in Christ. Today is the day that we put away grumbling and complaining. Today is the day that we rejoice in the Lord because one day we will be with Him. Why do we shine? Why should we strive to shine as Gospel lights? Lastly, because of the evangelistic witness that it is. Because it is only by putting away grumbling and complaining, it is only by rejoicing in the Lord, I shouldn't say only, these are some of the key ways rather that our distinctness is shown. Our distinctness is shown. And the Lord Jesus Himself said, this is how the world will know that you are My disciples. Not by how articulate your complaining is. Not by how strategic your divisiveness is. This is how they will know that you are My disciples. How you love one another. How you walk with one another in patience. In forbearance. In the museum, they couldn't resolve whether the statue was genuine or a forgery. It was just the distinctives weren't clear enough one way or the other. Friends, let us strive together to not give a distorted, muddy picture to the world around us but together with rejoicing as we walk together, as we hold fast to the Word that brings life, let us shine together as Gospel luminaries in this place that the Lord has put us to live and walk together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, As we come to You, Father, we, we thank You. We thank You for the promise of Your enduring work. Father, we thank You for the work of Christ for sinners like us. Father, we thank You that we have Your Word. We thank You that we have the Word that brings life. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that You would help us to hold fast to this Word. We pray, Father, that the, the fruit of holding fast that would be that we would resist the temptation to grumble and complain. We pray that the fruit of our clinging to the good news of Christ would be a rejoicing in You and in Your work always. Father, we pray that You would be pleased to help us grow in shining as Gospel witnesses in 
this age and in this place. Father, we pray for those who may be with us this morning who don't know the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that today that they would see that there is nothing that can be done to earn favor with You. The problem is too deep. The problem is too comprehensive. The problem is too long. There is nothing that can rescue from this body of sin, Paul writes elsewhere, except the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the praise of Your glorious grace, thank You that You have sent Christ. We pray, Father, that if there are those here today who do not know Christ, we pray that today for them, that today would be the day of salvation as they lay down their striving and turn in repentance and trust to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.